Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are served from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band, full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more info. He didn't walk away with a failure. Unless you're prepared to say that it would be better to accept a bad deal than to walk away from no deal, to me, that's a success. So you thought that nothing else was on the table. You were just testing the prospects we, by sending the president to Hanoi. No, no, no. We, we honestly didn't know. I mean, it, it's, it's not unusual in these circumstances to find that there are additional concessions that the other side might make. But we've tried to make it clear to them, uh, as the, again, the president has said this repeatedly, we're not going to make the mistakes of past administrations. We're not going to make the mistake that Obama made in the Iran nuclear deal. What we want is denuclearization broadly defined as the president himself laid out for Kim Jong-un in the paper that he gave him. Yeah. Don't you kind of wish that um, John Bolton, you know, was uh, Secretary of State? I love Mike Pompeo. Don't get me wrong. I think Mike Pompeo is doing a great job. But I kind of would like to see them reverse. Maybe it's just that um, I don't know. It's just I've always been a big fan of uh, John Bolton and it it always seems to me as though he's an afterthought in everybody's mind when he really should be the first thing that you think of. So we'll see. But I was thinking about that again this weekend. As I had said earlier, it didn't matter to anybody on the left whether he got a deal or didn't get a deal, they were going to hate whatever the results were. And I figured that out before the trip was even made. And then, of course, the the unfortunate, um, the way that the president just talks sometimes is very difficult for the intellectuals out there. And even for me, who's not that intellectual, um, because his immediate reaction isn't exactly what he's thinking, but it is generally going to get attention, which is always what he's thinking. And Otto Warmbier was definitely um, dead because of Kim Jong-un. And the idea that Kim Jong-un um, says he didn't understand or didn't know how bad it was or he really didn't know until the actual release of Otto Warmbier um, is not good enough for most of us. And I think the president probably should have uh, framed it very differently. He, he, he just blew it. And, and I always say, when he blows it, I tell you. But it's not the end of the world. And the way that so many people on the left and on the right are framing, especially some of these Republican senators, they're just uh, glory hounds for the most part. Uh, oh, look, only 81 people, entities and agencies have received um, document requests from the House Judiciary Chairman, Jerry Nadler. Wow, no small feat. Document requests demanding information from just about anyone within, you know, 10 feet of the president. I told you, I may end up having a subpoena for you know, an email or something. I just, I, I can tell you that uh, they, are, they are out of control. And I'm, gr I'm glad that they are because I think what this does is it makes the American people just live it. You know, we send you there and in this case, they give them the majority. And I don't know, maybe 
rank and file Democrats do want the Democrat Party to spend all of its energy on trashing Donald Trump and every member of his family. But why? You know, how does that serve any purpose? How does that foster any of the causes of, of you know, the, this party or the, this country for that matter? I mean, at some point, don't you have to say, what's the point? Why are you doing this? You know, if the face of your party is some, you know, hack from Hawaii or some 29-year-old from New York or some, you know, uh, hijab-wearing Minnesota uh, freshman, you're in deep doo-doo. And then your your tried and true guys like Jerry Nadler and Shifty Schiff and and uh, you know Maxine Waters, these people don't seem to be at all about the business of America. They're all about the business of getting rid of Donald Trump or at least making it impossible for him to govern. You know what's fascinating though? He he seems to be able to govern even with them doing all this. No matter how much impeachment talk, doesn't matter how much. Uh, you know, things sway in the other direction. He just keeps on doing what he's doing. You know, today he, or I guess it was yesterday, he decided that uh, college campuses who don't allow conservatives to speak freely should not receive certain funding. <laughs> Bravo! You know, did anybody else do that? Did George Bush do that? No. This stuff has been going on for decades now. And if it continues to go on, you won't have a conservative thought left in a head in academia or at least in college. You know, I, I think the, the faculty is too far gone, but eventually they will retire or die. It's the students that have to be at least challenged and given an alternative. You know, I looked at that crowd at CPAC, and I, as I said to you before, I'm not a big proponent of CPAC, but if you're a young conservative, where the hell are you going to go? for a pep rally you know you're not allowed to talk about it on your college campus you get you know somebody will punch you in the face as we saw you know happen on uh, berkeley somebody will just whack you over the head so you can't do it at school you better not do it in your sorority house or your fraternity house or your dorm room so you have CPAC once a year and you trot off with a half a dozen of your conservative friends. You probably lie to everybody else at school and say, well, I'm going home for the weekend. Uh, yeah, the week. Uh, I got a, I got an internship. That's it. That's right. I'll be in uh, Tallahassee. Yeah, that's the ticket. No, you, you're fearful. So you go to this event and there you are. You're, uh, you're surrounded by contemporaries who kind of feel the way you do. You can put your MAGA hat on, you know, you can, you can wear your American flag lapel pin. You can actually put on a suit and you won't get ripped and ragged and punched in the face. So I think when President Trump saw that, he said, enough of this crap. There's enough of these kids that they need protection, that these young people should be free to express their viewpoints on a college campus, which is, by the way, where I was told when I was, uh, you know, in high school, I was finally going to go somewhere where I could speak freely, where my opinions could be debated openly. And then these kids end up in a college campus, a good schools, and, you know, or when I say good schools, they're rated good schools, and they're not allowed to open their mouth. You know, God forbid they put on a MAGA hat. Never mind, uh, you know, have an actual discussion about supporting this administration. I remember when my son went off to 
to uh, an Ivy League institution right out of high school. And he got up there and, you know, his big claim to fame was, hey, I'm in the, I got the room that Tommy Lee Jones and, and, uh, who was the other one? Oh, uh, John Kerry or somebody. I don't know. He was in some big politico's room. And he said, look at this, Ma. You know, here I am among all these, you know, elitist kids who came out of these prep schools and they're all Democrats and I'm going to start a, you know, McCain for president uh, movement. <laughs> and, and I said, good luck with that, you know. But he did it. And he kind of held it together for a year. And then it was the pressure just got too much for him. You know, he just got quiet. This kid just internalized all of his conservative principles and beliefs. And, and I don't think he fundamentally changed, but he outwardly changed. And the proof that he didn't fundamentally change really um, is that he named his daughter Nixon. I mean, you got to have some guts to do that, even as a as a as a out of the closet conservative, right? You you, you that's not a popular name even in Republican circles. Now, of course, it's looking more and more like he's going to name his son Carter, but I think he just finds some humor in having a Nixon and a Carter in the same household, as will many people with his sense of humor find that humorous. But I. I remember watching his spirit get quenched. I remember the kid who went off thinking that he would be able to convert some people's thinking, just getting silenced over and over again. And then by the time he got to law school at Yale, forget it. I mean, his professors were every, uh, you know, ex-Clinton <laughs> cabinet member. Harold Coe was the dean of law school. I mean, he didn't have a chance. He certainly couldn't speak up. And uh, Donald Trump pushed back on that this weekend. He said, no, 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 you got to let these kids have their opinions and be able to bring speakers in that address their issues in the way they want them addressed. You cannot continue to uh, impinge on conservative speech while you're uh, brainwashing these kids into liberalism. So there are times when I look at what Donald Trump does while everybody's throwing 81 people get subpoenas today and Trump says conservative kids are going to get to speak on campus. You, you can't make this up. The guy is relentless. He's tireless. He gave a two-hour speech after flying across the world. <laughs> and, and anybody else, even a younger person, would have taken a day or two just to unwind. He gets right down to business. I am a huge admirer of this president. So you remember when uh, Jim Acosta and all the others in the uh, regular doofus media were telling us how safe uh, McAllen, Texas was? Yeah, that's why when I read this article over the weekend, I thought they, they should be in trouble for giving out that kind of information, uh, uh, telling us that it was a manufactured crisis in McAllen, Texas. Even Amnesty International was saying that, that it was a manufactured crisis. 
The wall is nothing more than a manufactured crisis and a divisive symbol of fear. The real crisis is the horrific violence and persecution faced by desperate people and families who have fled home. Okay. That's interesting. Well, look at this. Apparently, the um, city of McAllen, Texas, where the president was, a site of a absolutely horrific article on how female migrants were stashed in a home right there in McAllen, Texas, drugged and repeatedly raped. I think that since they put me in that room, they killed me. They raped us so many times, they didn't see us as human beings anymore. This from a mother of three, a 36-year-old mother of three, who crossed into the U.S. from Guatemala and spent weeks in a locked room in Texas. For weeks, the men that she had paid to get her safely to America drugged her with pills and cocaine and raped her over and over and over again. This is from the article, not in the uh, Breitbart, in the New York Times today. It was dark in the stash house where they kept her. The windows covered so no one could see inside. At first, the smugglers had her cook for the other migrants who had recently crossed illegally into the United States. Then they took her to a room upstairs, locked the door, and began taking turns with her. A 36-year-old mother of three had just completed her journey from her native Guatemala crossing the Rio Grande on a raft before being led to the house in the border city of McAllen. For weeks in that locked room, the men she had paid to get her safely to the U.S. drugged her with pills and cocaine, refusing to let her even bathe. I think that since they put me in that room, they killed me, she said. They raped us so many times, they didn't see us as human beings anymore you know this article recounts this ordeal from a woman and uh, it took place in 2014 but the stories are many and yet all too similar undocumented women making their way into american border towns beaten impregnated coerced into prostitution shackled to beds and trees, bound with duct tape, rope, or handcuffs. The New York Times found dozens of documented cases through interviews with law enforcement officials, prosecutors, federal judges, and immigrant advocates around the country, and a review of police reports and court records in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. Sexual assault of undocumented women along the border. And this is only the ones that we know about. So I don't know what, what, you know, what they need for it to be a crisis. But sexual violence, as the president has pointed out, has become an inescapable part of the collective migrant journey.
President Trump has used the threat faced by migrant women to make his case for the wall. So somebody tell me, if these numbers that he uses, what does he say? I think he says one in three women have been sexually assaulted. You know where those numbers come from? From Doctors Without Borders who treat women traveling through Mexico. That's not a uh, crisis. What the hell is that kind of violence befalling women to you? Where are the feminists in this country? Enjoy Friday night dinners at the American German Club. Doors open at 5 p.m. every Friday night of the year. Dinner, dessert, and coffee services are optional, serve from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. only. There's a live band from 7 to 11 playing ballroom, standards, party music, and German traditional. Full bar with liquor and wine, including German and domestic beers on tap. $10 for admission and dinner is just $12. Visit AmericanGermanClub.org for more information. Then we have the 23-year-old Honduran woman who told the authorities that she was sexually assaulted in a bedroom closet by a smuggler who had helped her and her sister cross into the uh, South Texas city of Mission. The next month, the sheriff's deputy in San Antonio was charged with sexually assaulting the four-year-old daughter of an undocumented Guatemalan woman and threatening to have her deported if she reported the abuse. In 2017, a guide leading a group of migrants through the Tohono O'odham Nation's reservation in Arizona raped a woman from El Salvador twice during a seven-day desert hike, threatening to leave her stranded if she resisted. I hope I leave you pregnant so you have one of my kids, he said, the woman told the authorities. Houses, uh, stash houses in Edinburgh, raped by a smuggler who brandished a machete. Two teenage girls reported they had been sexually assaulted by a Customs and Border Protection officer who, who they said forced them to strip, fondle them, then tried to get them to stop crying by offering chocolates, potato chips, and a blanket. And that's exactly where we ended up with this article in the New York Times, and the only thing that crossed the media, except for me talking about it, was uh, the 29-year-old from New York saying that Border Patrol agents are rapists. That's what she got out of this article. That in one of the hundred instances that are cited in this New York Times uh, article, it is actually a report of a, a CBP officer who forced these girls to strip and fondle them. The multiple rapes, the brutal beatings, the duct tape raped and stabbed stories didn't cross her mind. The actual number of sexual assaults is absolutely higher than those that have been documented by the police or by prosecutors because most attacks, not some attacks, most attacks are never reported. And a lot of these attacks don't end at the border. Women have reported being assaulted in detention facilities. 4,500 complaints about the sexual abuse of immigrant children by adult males 
immigrant males at government-funded detention facilities. You know, it's fascinating to me how you can get what you want out of any story. You know, that's why they say statistics lie and liars use statistics. Because to hear, um, you know, the 29-year-old from the Bronx tell this story, this is all about law enforcement raping women, although there's only one instance of someone actually fondling girls. Not one instance is cited of actual rape, except at the hands of coyotes and other illegal immigrants. You know, these undocumented women and children are the most unprotected of human beings. They're being told that you have to pay for this uh, fabulous trip to the United States with your body. They work in makeshift brothels, first some of them in Mexico and then many of them in McAllen, Texas or other border cities. When we got to the house, one woman said, there were many women. It was a big house. I couldn't see everybody's face, but there were different women in different rooms for prostitution. I wanted to run, but as I, I was afraid they were going to kill me. They just told us, you guys don't have money, so you have to pay with your body. When we crossed the river, there was a man waiting, a white guy with tattoos. He was in a truck. We got into the truck. He brought us into a house in McAllen, and when we got there, the guy started talking, and he said that I was new meat. When they wanted to have sex with me, they had to tie me up because I wasn't cooperative. They tied my feet together and my hands behind my back, and then they'd have sex with me from behind. Before, I could not talk about this. I would have panic attacks, really serious panic. I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I thought that everyone in the world saw me as a prostitute. I come from a poor family but a very decent family. It has affected me, but not anymore. I'm enraged. Those guys have mothers and daughters. What they did to us is what they did to women. Stories like this. Every time I closed my eyes, the men would appear. I lost count of how long I was there for. It wasn't me anymore. They have no mercy. They don't care that you're a mother, that you have a family. They see someone who doesn't matter. And I still remember when I was with them that it was my birthday and I didn't want to, not that day. And I remember that he grabbed me and at one point bit me. And when I arrived at the detention center, I still had the bite marks. I told them it was my birthday and according to them, the rape that day was for my birthday. I tried to kill myself three times because you can't live with all of that. And every time I closed my eyes, the men would appear. You'd shower, you'd close your eyes, they were there. I just didn't want to live with that in my head anymore. But here I am. The stories are horrific. They really are tied to a tree, thinking about my little brother. I'd never see him again. They undid me from the tree, 
put me in a car, two beds on top of the other, children's bunk beds and ropes, shoelaces for my wrists and my feet. My mind was blank. I was trying to understand everything. I didn't know what to do. My feet were tied up. I would look at him and he had a gun and that frightened me. And I asked him why and he answered me that he was doing this to me because I was the prettiest one of the three. There are people who sort of discard you when they know what happened to you. He bit my mouth so I could not cry out. I mean, these stories are... They're horrific. So what exactly will they consider a crisis if this is not a crisis? How many women have to be subjected to this treatment for the Democrats or for the open borders Republicans to consider this a crisis? That, that's my question. Because um, this is sickening. This is not, like I said, this is not some uh, article that was uh, thought up by, you know, a conservative think tank or, you know, numbers or interviews that were conducted by reporters at Breitbart. No, this is an actual New York Times investigative piece. And yet the only thing I heard about this this weekend was the 29-year-old from the Bronx saying that Border Patrol agents are rapists. You know, help me out here, folks. I mean, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? They've like staked their entire future on open borders, which leads to much suffering, as you can see in this article, which leads to um, fragmented families, which leads to American workers not given access to benefits, not given access to jobs. And as much, uh, you know, abortion as possible. You got to hang our hats on that abortion piece. You know, every one of them. You, you're not going to find one Democrat that's not going to be for, uh, you know, late term and, and if necessary, uh, post-birth abortion. If they, It's called infanticide, but, you know, they, they call it abortion. It's, uh, it's really, it's a terrible uh, turn of events for a party that was once the the party of the, the working class guy, the party of the American citizen who just didn't have a lot and maybe didn't have all the advantages. Now that's uh, not, not their concern anymore. Now their concern is, uh, you know, bringing low-skill workers into this country and it doesn't matter how they get here and it doesn't matter how they're abused when they are coming or even abused when they get here. That's not important to them. What's important to them is that they will one day vote for him, which really is uh, amazing. I'm going to have to believe in my heart of hearts that when some of these people figure out who's responsible for their misery and realize that if they don't want this country to turn into the country they just fled, they better start standing up for law and order. They better uh, put as much energy into law and order as they did into crossing the border illegally. All right, uh, you know, I'm just, I, I'm sorry that I had to do that, but, you know, they're not doing it. They're not doing it on television. They're not doing it on Fox. They're not doing it on NBC or CBS. They're not doing it on CNN. 
They don't care about the misery and suffering of these people. They just use them. They tell you that these people are suffering in their native countries, and therefore we have to welcome them here. But they don't tell you the suffering that they undergo when they come here and once they are here. Shame on them. Shame on the media for covering up this story. And uh, as much as I despise the gray lady, at least they had the nerve to print this article. Wow, where does the time go? Well, they give you so much to talk about every single day, you can't even imagine uh, if you could get to it all. And I did not get to it all. He's a liar, and you have to, and, and you know, we've known this, and you have to take, take that at face value. That being said, I thought, and I agree with Peggy Noonan on this, it was the portrait of the president he painted, particularly in his opening statement, that I thought maybe perhaps is more damaging in the end than any particular thing in which, on which he exonerated the president or implicated the president. I mean, the fact, talking about the president looking at him and saying, if I was going to go to Vietnam, you think I'm stupid? The, the president who he says never indicated he loved the country or wanted to make it better. This is a guy who spent, you know, years and years at his side. I think there's a lingering, a sort of cumulative impact of that intimate a portrait and damning a portrait painted by someone so close to the president. That by itself is not impeachable. I do think we're going to get to impeachment at some point because I don't think Democrats are going to be able to hold themselves back as they get closer to 2020. And I don't think it matters because, frankly, nothing's going to drive this president from office. He, you have to think of him. He's, he's, not, he's not Nixon. As I said, he's, he's, he's Buddy Cianci. He's Marion Barry. He's a guy who loves I'm Adam. He loves it, right? He wants the fight. It's interesting that he compared him to Marion Barry because... Uh, you know, the one thing that uh, we know about the president, and he's not uh, a substance abuser or a drinker of any kind, um, which, of course, was what was the downfall for Mayor Marion Barry. But uh, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because I have said over and over again that I've never seen anybody that seems to relish the fight like Donald Trump. And, and th this did bring back to my recollection some of these characters in the past who uh, who seemed to enjoy the fight. Definitely not Richard Nixon. He didn't like the fight, and he left the fight as quickly as he could. But uh, Marion Barry, boy, I'll tell you, I'm going to have to wrap my mind around that for another couple of days before it actually makes sense. But I think on some level that he had the – he had narrowed in on what it is about this president that really drives them crazy. More so than his politics, because I don't think they trust his politics. I don't think they believe his politics. No, the, the real, the thing that makes them so crazy is that they cannot make him feel bad. They can't get him to react to their attacks. He just, it, they just seem to roll off him. It's amazing. Um, make a great radio talk show host i'll tell you that because you better be able to withstand the fight if you're going to get into this kind of arena and he definitely has the uh the temperament for it some of the things tomorrow i'm going to be returning to talk about some of these gun control bills that are out there and some of this nonsense that democrats you know it is my greatest hope 
that they continue to hang their platform on abortion, especially late-term abortion or infanticide, and on uh, gun control. Because this has never been a successful route for them. Never once has this um, fulfilled their dreams and gotten them into a position where they could actually um, enact any of this crazy legislation that they're talking about. So tomorrow, I'm going to have a young lady on who I saw doing a press conference up at uh, Washington. Uh, she was the victim of a brutal rape, and she is now a big Second Amendment supporter. And as one can imagine, um, she knows what she's talking about. And so we're going to going to speak with her tomorrow i also um i'm going to pay a little attention tomorrow to some of the um i don't watch saturday night live nor am i a big fan of you know comics stand-up comics in general but over the weekend i didn't get to this today i do want to get to it tomorrow over the weekend i saw that uh prager university now has given candace owens from turning point usa a show and she interviewed Roseanne Barr. I guess it might have been her opening show, her inaugural show, whatever. And it really was fascinating. At first, you know, my initial reaction to it is, boy, Roseanne, you know, d doesn't learn from, you know, the consequences that she faced. And then I, uh, I watched it again. And really what I decided was um, Roseanne Barr has a very powerful message that I think America needs to hear. And it really has to do with freedom. And the ability to say things that happen to be true, but may not be politically acceptable. You know, if, if I have to tolerate the likes of uh, Representative Ilan Omar um, using every kind of slander and disgusting uh, tropes about Jews, then what what is the problem with Roseanne Barr saying some of the things that she says? I mean, now, look, obviously, I, I believe, Roseanne, that she had no idea that uh, Valerie Jarrett was was black she thought she was iranian and i know they want us to get confused that you know now ilan omar and rashida talib they are women of color that's not what we used to mean when we talked about women of color okay so it's fascinating to me that now everybody who yeah i guess then michelle malkin is a woman of color i mean if we're gonna include every asian and every muslim and every middle easterner and women of color the pool just got a lot bigger didn't it so for um, Roseanne Barr to have said what she said with the intent that she said it or lack of intent really makes me wonder why I got to tolerate Ilan Omar and, and, and some of the others, you know, AOC calling all Border Patrol agents rapists, why that's uh, acceptable to the mainstream media, but Roseanne Barr's not. So I'm going to air parts of that uh, Candace interview with Roseanne tomorrow. Thank you for your time this time. Until next time, I'll be back tomorrow at 10 if it be his will and he delays his coming.